Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, listeners, and welcome to the latest installment of MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. I'm Brian Shaw, corporate partner in MBM's London office, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Caroline Irvin. Hello, everyone. Now, I'd hope by now we no longer need an introduction, but for those new to the show, this is an M&A podcast where we catch up with past and present clients or advisors in the M&A space. We keep it light, fresh, informative, and of course, entertaining. Usually we wrap up in 20 minutes or so, but as the name suggests, snacking is the first order of proceedings. So Caroline, what are you munching on? Well, I've just come back after spending four months in Austria, so I thought the only way to spend a few days of quarantining is to snack on some speck that I've brought back. It's delicious. Speck. What's speck? Speck is like the Austrian version of cured ham. Mm, Okay. What about you? What have you got today? Well, nothing as fancy as that. Although, as I think I mentioned on, on some previous podcasts, my wife has taken to baking, which is a great effort for her because she didn't know how to turn the stove on before we had our little one. So I'm snacking on some homemade banana bread that she made last week. It's delicious. Anyway, enough about snacks. We need to get on with the show. So today we are joined by a former lawyer turned entrepreneur. Giles Thompson began his working life as a solicitor in various city and international law firms. Upon leaving the solicitor life behind him, Giles joined a legal tech company known as Avoca and has helped grow that business where it is now being used in those very same law firms. In today's episode, I'll be digging deeper into the law tech scene and how products like Avoca can help drive efficiencies in the M&A space and make our lives and our clients' lives much better. Giles, welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi there. Um, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm very jealous of the, the, the speck. I know exactly what that is. And, and uh, it reminds me of skiing, actually. It's, uh, sometimes it comes with a cheese fondue uh, and actually it's the best part. It does indeed. I'm very pleased to hear that. Um, and on that very subject, Giles, why don't you tell us what you're snacking on? So I am very excited because uh, I am eating sushi uh, for the first time in over a year. Uh, I've been mm-hmm. stuck out in the sticks in, in rural North Norfolk. And yes, my, one of my siblings was in London yesterday and they, they, they brought it back um, after they were there for, for work purposes. Uh, and yeah, and you can't get sushi in Norfolk. So it's a, a pretty welcome treat. We are international snacking front mm, today. We are. It's my <laughs> banana bread to shame. <laughs> so Giles, could you just tell the listeners, you know, where did it all, all begin and how did you end up where you are today? I grew up in rural Norfolk and actually I'm from a farming family. My first job was actually as a, a manual labourer uh, driving a tractor. I did that for, for seven seasons throughout my, my teenage years. And, and actually, then I went off to, to Bristol Uni to do politics. I didn't really have any other idea of what I wanted to do. And then I got dragged along to a milk round uh, presentation. I think it was Linklaters. And I said, oh, well, this does sound quite good, actually. Somebody paying for me to continue my education. And, and I get to tell companies, you know, what to do after, after two years of training. I thought that sounded quite good. And, and actually, it was quite funny. I, I ended up putting on all my, my applications and things, you know, I know how to work 15 hour plus days, except, you know, it obviously won't be an attractor. And I, I basically found that while I was practicing law, I ended up was doing a lot of repetition and, and a lot of re-keying um, data and information. And actually, I was getting quite good at it, getting very good at using control F, uh, find and replace. Um, and I thought, you know what, actually, I think in, in, in eight to 10 years, this will not be what, what lawyers are doing. And I wasn't sure it was going to be serving me uh, very well when I came to that sort of partner track. 
Um, and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to uh, move to the other side and see if I can't help junior lawyers like myself to focus on the bits which they really signed up to do, which, you know, advising clients and getting close to their businesses. That's quite a quite a career move and very impressive. Mm. And I'm, actually, it's, it's music to my ears to hear somebody say that you can make control F replacing <laughs> things automated. But I can imagine that working for a law firm, you would have had a nice steady paycheck and jumping ship was probably not the easiest decision to make. So what made you decide to leave the trusted world of the law, although I know you still keep your practicing certificate, which is very good news, and to move to a technology company? feels inevitable to me that law firms are going to become more, and also other forms of legal service, uh, you know, delivery vehicles, are going to become more, more and more tech uh, involved. And I felt like actually moving to a vendor which supports law firms and, and in-house legal teams actually was going to prepare me to be a lawyer uh, better, even if I ended up going back and, and changing my mind. And we're seeing that tech is permeating sort of every area of law firms now. I saw just how tough uh, a lot of those sort of more manual repetitive tasks can be uh, on a per- and the personal toll it takes on lawyers. Actually, I think a large part of it was wanting to help myself and people who were in my kind of position in practice to focus on the bits which they really enjoyed. And I felt like lawyers are the people who needed to jump, jump over and sort of help guide that process. Because I think historically, a lot of the tech that gets designed for lawyers isn't always fit for purpose. No, you get a lot of technology people who aren't lawyers. And yeah, it's good to have a lawyer that's on that side of the fence. Why, why Avoca? You know, wh- where did that come about? Did you find them? You know, what, what made that decision? And, and then also tell us more about what Avoca does, where it began and where, where the future takes is taking it. Perhaps a bit of a boring answer, but I just felt like document automation and creation of drafts uh, of documents it's, it's very unsexy, but I tell you what, it's a, where a lot, of, a, a, a lot of the time, a lot of the time is incurred. The practice areas which are most ripe for that, for automation of that process are, are practice areas like uh, corporate and, uh, and finance. So for me, that was one of the big uh, justifications for me going and doing document automation. I also felt like a lot of the tools that were initially out there were not particularly easy in terms of how you create the automations. What I'd seen while I was in practice was actually a lot of the tools involved coding. And what you'd have is an IT person going in and taking a precedent, following some instructions that a lawyer had given them, and then giving the precedent back to them with all of this code and markup language on it. And I'd been in the position where I was a lawyer looking at that and trying to review it. And and there was just no chance that I was ever going to be able to review that in an efficient and accurate way. So for me, it was all about bridging that, that communication gap between IT and lawyers and actually empowering lawyers to have a much greater involvement in the, in the automation process and actually maybe learning automation as a skill. And actually uh, linking that back to sort of Avoca, well, there aren't very many solutions out there who enable you to apply automation to documents yourself, but actually don't compromise on power and sophistication. So what I also knew from practice was actually some of these documents, you know, we're talking about SPAs and uh, loan facilities are mammoth. And so for me, it was very important that you had the, the combination of that simplicity, but also you, if you're taking the time as a lawyer to learn a solution, you don't want to find out that if you have a document over 50 pages, you can't use it. The guys who run the, the business, uh, David and Elliot, they actually have a pretty similar story to me. David le- left his career at Linklater's relatively early as a lawyer. Elliot was similar at Slaughter and May. And they had a similar vision. And I have to say, the reason I chose Avoca was in addition to the technology, I just had faith. They got it um, and they seemed like you know, good people who, who had fantastic client relationships already. And I, I felt like that was a, a real recipe for success. 
I often think about this with because it's, there's more and more um, automation software being made available to law firms, but also smart contract software being made available to law firms. And I guess you would have had the training just as we would have had of, you know, having to do the control F at two o'clock in the morning and finding all the defined terms and why is it not capitalized and what does it mean and all of that. It's as tedious and as tiresome as that is, it's kind of part of the training. Do you think that junior lawyers in the future are going to be missing out as a result of these automated systems? That's an absolutely fabulous question. And, and yeah, I like Caroline, that question. Yeah. <laughs> Car- we will get to M&A at some point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, I think, I think it's relevant. I mean, it's super relevant for, for M&A because definitely, I mean, that's how people learn how these transactions all, all tie together. What I would say to you is actually the process of automating a document. And so, you know, taking that standard form precedent and drilling down into when does this clause need to be included? When does it need to be excluded? When does a different permutation of it need to be included? And then, you know, going even deeper and saying, you know, where an SPA is created in, in so-and-so way, we might need to keep, uh, create certain ancillary documents, certain ancillary, you know, letters, uh, corporate authorities, all this kind of thing. When you kind of have to process map that the whole transaction and also figure out every single commercial and legal variable within those contracts, that is a more in-depth kind of piece of analysis on all of the legal variables and, and possible machinations than I think I ever dealt with as a trainee or as a junior lawyer. So I think, I guess my answer to that would be is, so yeah, you do miss out on a little bit of the sort of control effing, but actually in setting up those precedents ready for rinsing and repeating by others, trainees learn a huge deal. And, and, and actually, a lot of the time, our clients are creating new uh, documents, and then they're wanting to automate them in the sort of following two or three days to use them for a live transaction. And so trainees being involved in that process is hugely valuable. So I hope that answers your question, Caroline. Uh, it does. I think like an old lawyer, I'll always be mm-hmm. a little bit skeptical. But you know, it's the same sort of like, I can't imagine a life before PLC, practical law, for example. So you know, these things do develop and we get used to them. Maybe we can dive into some, some M&A deals. Can you give us maybe a couple of examples where you've, where you've been involved in an M&A deal, maybe on the due diligence side, whether on IP or other uh, practice areas that you were involved in? So, so what, we, what we find is where we work with um, scale-ups or, or indeed law firms that we work for, uh, work, working for these scale-ups and you know, companies which are, are looking to sort of fundraise or indeed um, to be acquired, when they're sort of creating their contracts and, and preparing them for automation, because they're taking the individual data points within those contracts. So for example, things like, you know, what type of liability provision do we have in this contract? You know, do we have a change of control provision in this contract? Do we have an assignment right? Because we're isolating that information and at the point of drafting, we know where those different provisions are located within contracts. What that means is at any point in time, our clients who use our tool are able to go into their entire contract repository and actually say, hey, which of my contracts have a change of control clause? And then, you know, hit enter and every single contract which has a change of control clause in it will be surfaced. Um, And we can do that with 100% accuracy because we've already defined where those structured data points are located within contracts. The previous model was we have a pile of pieces of paper and we go through and perhaps we have a junior lawyer going through and checking every single one for a change of control clause. And then we have a senior lawyer going through and checking that work on a, on a spot check basis. Obviously we now move to machine learning um, and natural language processing and, and, and tools like that. 
But actually the issue there is, number one, that takes a huge amount of time, but also number two, um, that isn't 100% accurate. Whereas with our solution, you're able to be 100% accurate in terms of identifying these types of clauses and, and sort of being able to conduct that out of the box due diligence at any point. The other point there is that really sort of knocks down the cost of scoping out the potential for an acquisition or indeed for raising finance. Because if you know at any point sort of that you have an out of the box due diligence process that you can run in a matter of seconds and you're able to share that information with potential buyers at the drop of a hat, what it means is, you know, ultimately you're getting a better outcome in terms of the value because clearly I don't need to say to people, tell the people who are listening to this where there's, a, where there's less uncertainty, at least in, in theory, the value that you're able to realize for whatever business you have is going to be higher because there's that just less risk involved in the acquisition in terms of unknowns. But how, I mean, a change of control clause can be worded in all sorts of different ways. How can you be sure it's going to catch all the relevant provisions? So the idea is basically when people are drafting their standard um, business as usual contracts, the stakeholders who are drafting those contracts are accessing a survey or a questionnaire, which has been put together by the in-house lawyers in that team or their external advisors. And by selecting only from the available options within that questionnaire, you know, as a business, that those stakeholders are only able to select from that menu of pre-vetted options in terms of the drafting and the, the contract. And so therefore, you know which of those you know, three liability clauses which are available to that person who's you know, creating that new contract has been selected. And what we're also able to do is because our pr platform allows for, it allows for negotiation on the platform with counterparties, what we're also able to tell is actually not only can we say which of your liability clauses is invoked in relation to each of those contracts, because we know have all the negotiation data, we know circumstances where that uh, change of control clause, for example, has been negotiated in part, and we can flag that immediately and we can say, hey, these contracts have a change of control um, clause in them, but that's subsequently been negotiated, so uh, you may want to have a look at those in a bit more detail. I think very, very, very useful. We always tell our clients, you know, prepare, prepare, prepare. That, that's always uh, the main advice that we do if, if they're looking to sell within six or 12 months or, or looking to do a fundraise. It just smooths out the process. If I'm using Avoca in my due diligence process for an M&A deal, let's say, can I download the information? Like, can I save the information so that if, you know, you've got to think about the potential liability claims that might come up and you need to save that information somewhere? I mean, I guess maybe warranty and indemnity insurance providers are also interested in, in what you provide and, um, and how that information is scoped. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what you could do uh, in theory, Caroline, is you could just say, right, show me every single one of my, my drafts uh, contracts and all my completed contracts on the platform. And that we do have a number of clients where that, that is all of the contracts they, they've executed. And, and, and it's actually a lot of the ones which people derive a lot of their value from uh, in terms of the overall business. So it could be partnership contracts, it could be major customer um, contracts, and it could be sort of franchise agreements and that kind of thing. You could just download every single one of those and the key provisions of, uh, of those in terms of which of the standard provisions have been included and also which of them have deviated from standard. You could just have a, a mass Excel sheet which has all of that information and obviously subject to confidentiality concerns and things. You could send that through to a potential buyer sort of you know, in a, in a matter of seconds, whenever you wanted to, and indeed an insurer as well. 
it sounds like it would speed up the process, particularly more at the early stages. I mean, most clients would still want some sort of, you know, human review to cross-check that the software is working that it should do and, and not saying it doesn't, but I'm just saying that's just human nature, but it certainly will speed up the process. Uh, the way I would see it is you, you run a report and you say, okay, here are our material terms across all of our contracts. Where have we deviated from our standard terms and where have we got sort of bespoke drafting in those? And then you, you could dive straight in those. And instead of spending 80% of your time going across and identifying sort of uncontroversial things, you could provide, you know, spend the same amount of time providing really in-depth advice around where deviations have been made. And so there's just that much t- more time that can be focused on the real value add. Um, and, you, you know, you find, you find where the problems are straight away and you can get to resolving those problems, um, you know, straight away. Yeah, absolutely. I think it will, it will be a, a great time saver and I'm sure it has been for, for some of the firms that you've already identified. If, if you're speaking to someone looking to sell their business or looking to do a fundraise um, imminently, what advice would you give them to help best prepare their business to facilitate a healthy and smooth exit or fundraise? I think the key thing is implementing um, or at least enforcing some kind of um, standardization and uh, formal approvals for business as usual contracting because it's often the silliest things that you find which can can delay a transaction happening yeah having having a process around really basic stuff like storing your contracts and also where you know a a particular risk or or, uh, in terms of a negotiation point that's being conceded or a type of clause that's being included um occurs having a robust approval process and a record of you know the major deviations that you've made so I guess, I guess basically just knowing where your skeletons are, are hidden uh, ahead of time. I think another key one, and it's also um, having some kind of robust process around version control and how you renew your contracts. And actually one tiny piece of advice would be, you know, actually think pretty carefully about whether you want to renew a contract, amend it, or whether you just, you're better off starting again. That, that can sometimes make things a bit easier. It certainly can. That was really insightful. Thank you so much, Giles. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Just before we end the podcast, we have some time to do our rapid fire round. Giles, you will have 60 seconds to answer as many questions as you can in that time. So <laughs> just say the first thing that comes to mind. In one word or phrase only. On your mark. Get set. Where did you go to school? Norfolk, Gresham School. Favorite food? I, I want, I'm going to say sushi. <laughs> If you were having a dinner party and could invite three guests, alive, dead, or fictional, who would you invite and why? Jimmy Anderson, uh, England cricketer. He seems like quite a good chap. Tiger Woods. I don't know whether he'd be an interesting chap, actually, but um, if I could get away with asking him some of the controversial questions, maybe that would be um, interesting. And then probably a philosopher. You have to chuck in a philosopher if you're going for the brawny sports people. Someone really controversial like Richard Dawkins, just to spice things up. Apple or Android? Apple, for sure. Strangest place you have visited? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Uh, Norfolk. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. To be honest, yeah. Anywhere anywhere I've left has been more normal. Um, (laughs) Favourite movie? Uh, Dodgeball. And finally, if you were down to your last 10 quid, where would you invest it? Bitcoin.
Giles, thank you so much for your time and participating in MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. So that's it for today. Thank you for joining us with our chat with Giles Thompson from Avoca. Join us next time when Caroline and I will be joined by another special guest and we will chat and snack all things M&A. Goodbye, all. Goodbye.